Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales on KCAW Sitka. I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein, with Grace Greenwald and Outer Coast students. We're excited to be here with a live audience on the Smokestack stage on the Sitka Fine Arts Campus. We're here on Klingitani, the ancestral homelands of the Klingit people, with respect and gratitude for this place and the people who have lived here and told stories since time immemorial. Our theme for this edition of Sitka Tells Tales is relationship to place, stories of connection to culture, land, and community. We have five stories featuring frogs, dancing, an accordion, and an outburst in a high school English class. Tales filled with hurdles, fears, realizations, and insights. Tellers for this episode of Sitka Tells Tales are Pete Moss Atkinson, Lily Dela Cruz, Sophia Tipkanina, Mamsi Booth, Magnus Bjorgum, and we are so appreciative of the tellers and everyone who has made this event possible. Outer Coast is so grateful to partner with Art Change Inc. and Raven Radio on this edition of Sitka Tells Tales. Outer Coast is a new post-secondary institution here in Sitka. Outer Coast offers transformative, immersive education for students from across Alaska and around the world and is on a pathway to becoming a two-year liberal arts college. At Outer Coast, students form tight-knit seminar-style classrooms, engage in meaningful service and labor in the Sitka community, and practice communal living and self-governance, all efforts that grow their toolkits to make change for their communities and in their own lives. An Outer Coast education is rooted in understanding community and place. Inspired by Ron and Suzanne Skolan's 1986 Axe Handle Academy, a proposal that imagined a new approach to education for Alaskan students focused on relationship with place, our 31 summer seminar students have been developing personal stories and narratives that explore their own relationship with home, the people, land, languages, and cultures that shape them. You can learn more about the Axe Handle Academy by visiting the website of the Alaska Native Knowledge Network. We are so grateful that our five storytellers who have been nominated by their peers have had the opportunity to share their stories with the community of Sitka and many listeners beyond through KCAW Raven Radio. Let's welcome our first storyteller, Pete Moss Addison. Moss is here from his home on Prince of Wales Island down by Ketchikan. He's a dedicated student and an avid consumer of all things nerd culture. Okay, okay, okay. So I'm actually going to be telling two different stories. Uh, the first one is about my dad, and so I'm going to tell it in the way he tells it, which is to say not entirely true. So if you hear any chronological inconsistencies, anything that is full on just not correct, don't worry about it. Humor him, he's an old man. So my dad is a logger. He's been doing it since he was 14. My grandfather owned a logging company. So that's what he's been doing his whole life. He gets up super early in the morning before the sun rises, and he goes to work and he hikes up mountains and he falls trees and he comes home and he does it again and again and again. And he gets one day off and that's on Sunday. And it's not really much of a day off either because he has to prep his chains for the next day and the next day and the next day. And that's the life my father lives. And so one summer, I was about eight and it's hunting season. And so he goes up our mountain 
and we have this stream that goes down. We're right sort of at the bottom between the mountain and the bay. Really lovely. And so he's following this stream, looking for deer, and he's following it, and he's going up the mountain, and he sees this pond, and this pond is full of salamanders. I've never even seen a salamander. Where is he finding these salamanders? It's not even like that far up the mountain. But as he tells it, it is so full of salamanders, he has to bob and weave out of the way to not step on any of these little guys, because even though he is this big, beefy, burly logger man, he still has the heart of gold. And so he goes, and he's walking up this mountain, and he hasn't found any deer, and he finds another pond, and this one is full of frogs. I've seen one frog, one frog, but they're jumping everywhere. He's got, like, frogs brushing them off his coat. They're everywhere. But no deer. So he keeps going up this mountain, and he passes the alpine, and he gets to the very top, where there's the stream head, and the ice from the winter is still melting, and there's no one else around. We are probably the closest house to the top of this mountain. And my dad's not a very public man, right? But there's no one around. So he decides to take a little dip in this stream. No big deal. Nice cold water, super refreshing. And then he hears helicopter blades, and it's flying directly over him. And they're so close, he can see the eyes of the people flying over. And he puts on his clothes, and grabs all of his stuff, and he's going down the mountain. He's following the stream back down, and he looks around, and he realizes he doesn't know where he is. But the fun thing about living on an island, especially one that has this like weird shape that Prince of Wales does, is if you walk in one direction long enough, you will find the ocean, or you will find a highway. And so he walks, and he walks, and he finds a highway. It's right next to this campground, Eagle Lake or something. We love naming things after animals here. So he finds the highway, he hitchhikes home, he gets home at maybe midnight, and it is late, and we are worried about him, but he's fine. And so now, we skip forward 10 years, and this time it's my story. I am across the world. I am on fully the opposite side of the planet. I'm in Germany. I am here as an exchange student, and I've been there maybe three months, and I'm not doing well. I haven't made a lot of friends. I haven't learned the language. It's really just me and my two host moms that really talk and connect, and they're getting worried about me. They're encouraging me to leave the room, because I won't. I stay in the dark, and I don't even leave my room, let alone my apartment. But there's a park 15 minutes from there. It's called Englischer Garden, and they say, We've brought you there once before. You should be able to make it on your own. It's super easy, basically a straight line. You can just pull up Google Maps on your phone and find it super easy. And so eventually, after maybe a week of convincing and controlling, I decide to go. It's the weekend, it'll be fine. I take out my phone. It's not like super well charged, but it's a 15 minute walk, it'll be okay. And I take out the app and I'm walking and 15 minutes have passed, and I haven't found the park yet, but I must be close, right? And so maybe half an hour has passed, and I still haven't found it, and I've made a couple of loops, but I think this time, this time I got it. And I keep going, and eventually I find the park. I'm there. I look on my phone, and I'm on the opposite side of the park to where I was meant to be, but it's fine. I haven't actually been to this part of the park before, so I'm a little nervous, but I'm glad I found, like, trees. That's at least the right shape I was going for. 
And so I'm walking through this park and my phone's at maybe 5%, so that's not fun. And it's starting to get dark, it's okay. I should head home. This was an adventure, maybe not the right kind I was looking for, but no problem, we can get home. And so I'm walking through the park and it's a straight line, I can do it, and there's a fork in the road and now I'm freaking out. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I am, really, but it's okay. I pick a direction, it's like, okay, we're gonna walk this way long enough, I'll find something, right? And my phone's maybe at 3%, and I get out of the park, and now there's a bunch of buildings around, and a bunch of cars, and cars are scary, and it's getting dark, and there's just the lights, and oh wait, I've been to this store before, I've been to this store before, okay, I can figure it out from here. My phone's at 2%, oh no, it's at 1%, but it's okay. I'm going the wrong way. This is the wrong direction. I need to turn around. My phone is dead. But I know this store, and I know that street. And that's my apartment. And I make it home. And I go up the stairs. And I'm so tired and stressed and worried, and I open the door. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I was supposed to be gone maybe half an hour, and I have no idea how long I've been gone, but it was definitely more than half an hour. I open the door and there's my two host moms and they're sitting on the couch and they're watching the news. And they go, oh, do you have a nice walk? Not even worried, no sweat off their back. That's fine. I tell them the whole story, we laugh it off. And then I go back to bed and I get up in the morning and I do it all over again. And after a while I decide I can't stay in Germany anymore. It is freaking me out. I am exhausted. And so I leave my program early, about three months early. And I get back to Prince of Wales. And I see my dad again, and we hug, and I tell him the story of when I got lost trying to go to the park for 15 minutes and was gone for about an hour and a half. And we laugh again. And me and my dad don't really get along well, but that is his favorite story about me. And the best part is that the story I just told, the one where he goes up the mountain and he's on the wrong side, that's my favorite story about him. I've heard him tell it a million times. He hates telling that story, but I love hearing it. And I think it's so beautiful because we both got so lost. We were both in the exact opposite place of where we needed to be. And we both made it home and we both made it back to each other. And that's what I wanna keep doing. Thank you, Moss. Now let's welcome our next storyteller, Lily De La Cruz. Lily's hometown is Anchorage, Alaska, where she was born and raised and is just fresh out of high school. She loves learning about animals and is going to vet technician school in the fall. This being her first time on the radio, she would love to share the beginning of her journey to expand her cultural boundaries. I want to talk about this new job I recently have gotten in the half, about a half a year ago. Um, it's a job run by my auntie and my uncle who own a Filipino dessert bakery. Uh, my sister works there and she was looking for someone to cover her shifts and she asked me. And originally I didn't want to do it because she always comes home with these like horror stories of older Filipino lady always trying to debate the price of bread. <laughs> and I just didn't want to deal with that. but. 
it was a new experience. I already had a job. So I was like, you know what? This would be a fun side hustle. So I said yes. And two days later, I started in the bakery. Uh, my first day was very stressful. My sister was showing me all the desserts on, on, out on the case. And she's like, on the right, there's tapioca drinks and peachy peachy on the bottom. And I'm like, what's peachy peachy? <laughs> and she explains it to me. And then she goes on to the next section. She's like, OK, um, Hopia and Kuchinta go here. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I have no clue what that was. And that day, I realized I really did not know a lot of Filipino desserts and food. Um, so I remember that weekend, I was constantly studying like all the foods that we sold and all the drinks and um, all the pastries are sold. And my sister was just constantly quizzing me on them. And by the next week, I was pretty, pretty solid about it. Um, it was a new opportunity because it was weird that the customers knew more than me and I was selling them the food. Um, but it was a great opportunity for me to learn and now I feel like I can, I can hold a solid conversation about Filipino desserts. The next part I wanna talk about, you didn't hear in my opening, I just graduated high school and a goal of mine for my last year of high school was to do, be more involved and to do all the spirit days each quarter. And one of the spirit days coming up was culture day. And growing up, I never really did culture day because I never had anything to wear. And I just felt like I was in the position to do it because I just like didn't know much about myself. So I always like shrugged it off. But this year was different. Um, I just happened to have a barong that just happened to be in my closet. It was given to me. And a barong is a Filipino dress. It's the sheer top with collars and a cuff. And it's sheer with white embroidery on it. And it's beautiful. Um, I just, I had that and I was like, maybe I can wear that this year. But I decided not to, because I'm lame. I remember going to school in a hoodie and leggings. And then like right as I walked through the doors, I saw, it was just right in my face. Everyone was dressed up. Um, I saw the, the Samoan community all dressed in their skirts with all their patterns. And then I saw the Hmong community all in their vibrant fabrics with all these gold coins. And throughout the school, I can hear these gold coins jingling through the halls. And I went to class like regular and I was like, man, that was lame. Why didn't I dress up? I regretted it. And before lunch, I was like, you know what? I do want to dress up. So I skipped my class right before lunch and I went home. <laughs> <laughs> I grabbed my brong when I got home and I put on like my best gold earrings and my necklace and then I did my hair all nice. I had a little gold hair clip in. I went back to school and I just remember walking through the cafeteria, like, like it was like a movie scene, slow motion towards my friend group that were all dressed up. I remember them looking at me like erupting in cheers, like so happy that I dressed up. And I'm really glad I changed my mind because that day was like one of the best days of school. I just felt very proud and I just felt like I was part of the group. And it was great. Another memory I wanna share is when I was younger, me and my mom were going to church and I remember sitting down in my church and waiting for service to start. And the minister stands up and he starts preaching. That's not in English. Um, so it was a very long hour just sitting there because in our household, we only speak English. Uh, after service, I remember going back to the car and my mom was upset about something, but it was probably about the service. But I think she was upset that no one told us that it wasn't in English. And then she was in the driver's seat. I was in the passenger seat. And then I remember her saying, Tagalog is such an ugly language. And Tagalog is one of the main languages spoken in the Philippines. And it was also the language that was spoken during the preaching. And 
I remember that day, it was very significant because I just felt these imaginary borders coming up around me after that. I was about eight years old, I'd say, so about like 10 years ago. But my mom, she has good intentions. She's a good person. And just that little slip up in front of me really stuck with me that day. And it would break her heart. She knew I still remembered that. But slowly but surely, those borders are coming down. I went to a birthday party a couple months ago, my best friend's birthday. She just turned 18. I remember being in this kitchen, about 10 of us all stuck in this kitchen, shoulder to shoulder, and it was really hot. And we were all joking and playing playing games and talking about mispronouncing the Filipino dishes that were being served. And I remember being in this like tight circle with everyone, even this imaginary circle. I was in this with everyone bonding. And I remember laughing and just feeling happy. And then this boy comes up to me and tells me, you're so white, it's disgusting. And then I just remembered being pushed out of that circle. I wasn't, I was just an outsider again. And then that day was very significant because I went home like 10 minutes after that because I was just like out of the mood of being there. I was just done. And I talked about it to my mom about it and then we just talked about how it was really messed up, how he had the audacity to say that to me. And after that, I just kind of realized, why should I let people tell me who I am? Why should I let people decide how white or how Asian I am? And putting all these stories together, I realized like being a part of my culture is being proud one moment and then feeling like an outsider the other time. And I'm just not going to let anyone tell me who I am. And to go back to the question I wanted to answer was define the boundaries of my culture. And I want to decide that I make those boundaries and I am able to expand those how I want and when I want. Thank you, Lily. That was such a great story. Okay, next we're going to welcome up our, our next storyteller, Sophia Tapkina. Okay, Sophia comes from southeastern Ukraine, where her family still resides now. She is a rising senior at NMH School in Massachusetts, where they spent the last two years. Sophia came to Outer Coast to pursue their passions in learning about culture, nature, hiking, and art. When inspiration strikes me, I sit in front of my laptop and stare at its keyboard. There, a Ukrainian Yi stands next to a German Asset, while a French Cicidilla fights over dominance with a Russian U. I look at my laptop and see the next entry for a storytelling blog that I have, and I'm thinking about the language I should write it on what part of me to expose, what emotion to convey. And so today, to understand myself, for language shapes a person just like sexuality, race, social class, whatnot, to understand myself, I dive into my memories, looking for what you can tell, uh, what you can call uh, my language origin, something with a clear sign on it saying that this is me. My first memory stop is um, on Kupala night. And you can imagine a dark forest, just like Sitka, uh, and a still river, just like Indian river. 
you can imagine um, young couples jumping over a bonfire and everyone looking for a fern flower because on Kupala night, you get supernatural powers from it. So Kupala night is one of the oldest um, Ukrainian holidays and it's a beautiful celebration of who and what we Ukrainians are. I loved listening to folk songs that the elders sing on Kupala night. And in Ukrainian, we call our language Mova Solovina, or um, you can translate it into warbler song because of how melodic and soft and just flowing the words are. And so I love listening to those songs just as much as I love Ukrainian language. But whenever I heard those songs, the intrusive words of my relatives kept ringing in my mind. They call Ukrainian language old-fashioned, with no perspectives or no future. And it's a folk language in their words, something that you can't be civilized while speaking, whatever that means. And yes, I know that my relatives suffer from generational trauma from the Soviet times and before when we were insulted, persecuted, and killed for speaking our language and practicing our culture. I know that their words do not reflect the truth about Ukrainian language. I know it, and yet I still feel some deep-rooted shame whenever I speak the language of my people. But my memory journey keeps pushing me forward, and right now I'm on a rickety couch as my father is reading me a book. And he's reading me Mark Twain and Jules Verne and Isaac Asimov and H.P. Lovecraft and all these different writers. And without a doubt, it was my father who read me all these hundreds of books. It was him who instilled in me the love for reading and eventually the love for writing. Um, without him, I can be sure that I would never get get the inspiration to push against the boundaries. And I would not be standing here now telling you the story today. It's so beautiful and wonderful, but there is one nuance. My father only speaks Russian, and all the books that he read to me from all over the world, he also read to me in Russian. Now, my father is Ukrainian. But his side of the family was hit harder with the generational trauma, and he refuses to speak in Ukrainian because Russian is the only language he learned, and it, it, is, it was the language that protected him during the Soviet times. I started writing to create my own conclusions to my own endings to the Treasure Island and the Three Musketeers, and I truly owe the start of my storytelling blog to my father and his reading me books. And today, this writing defines me. So there is still a part of me that thinks in Russian when it comes to adventures in reality or in my imagination. But my memory journey keeps pushing me forward and I make one last stop uh, in my English language classroom at my... Um, Ukrainian school, and it must have been a third or fourth grade, and um, the teacher is explaining the irregular verbs, 
And um, why is it uh, ride road ridden, but fly flew flown? <laughs> what is this torture? And why, why am I the one learning it? Uh, so one, one of my classmates had a bit more audacity than I did, and he shouted out, so who cares? <laughs> Why the heck do we need to learn this stuff? Rest assured, he received a conversation with the headmistress and his disappointed parents. But um, one thing that our teacher said stuck with me. She said, if you want to be anything in this world, you must know English. And well, see, there is a truth to that. Because if I want to communicate my ideas with the rest of the world, English is the best option to do so. And after learning more and after reading more, definitely now on my own and in English, I stopped necessarily thinking about the torturous part of English language and the irregularities that um, make no sense to me still. Uh, but uh, I, I found that I f English feels natural to me on a, on a level that is different from Ukrainian or Russian. And English became a roadmap for me to discover the parts of me that I never knew existed. So where does this memory journey bring me? To the present. And the present is war. The war strangles me with its overwhelming presence in my life. It keeps my life on a knife edge, and that colossal knife can strike down my family, my city, and everything that I care about beyond. So when the war started, this separation I felt between all of my languages started to feel all the more present. One of Putin's main grounds for starting the war was what he called the liberation of the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine, because in his mind, speaking a language constitutes a national identity. And so how can I speak Russian to my father or to anyone else without feeling like a traitor to my country? With English, I um, spread the realities of the war with my friends here in the US, in my school community in Massachusetts and beyond. And that is the best way for me to communicate what is truly happening in my home because awareness brings more help. And yet I still can't fully dedicate myself just to English because despite all these benefits, the majority of my compatriots of Ukrainians don't speak English, and it's them who I want to support most right now. Because the only way I have to support them right now is through my writing. And with my writing, I can prove that all those, all those intrusive words of my relatives about how Ukrainian is old-fashioned and has no perspectives, I can prove them wrong through my writing, be it poetry or scholarly articles or short stories, I'm adding to this volume of Ukrainian literature 
saying that, yes, we do have culture, we do have the past, and we can reconstruct ourselves to be the better self in the future. And I'm saying that, yes, we Ukrainians have a future. So where does this, all of this leave me? It leaves me here. I don't need to decide which one language defines me or belongs to me. I don't need to choose just one because I am more than my people's past. I'm more than adventure or books. I am more than the doors to the global communication. I am more than all of that and I can prove it by sharing my ideas, by sharing myself with all the languages that belong to me. And this is the true me. Thank you, Sophia. Now let's welcome our next storyteller, Mumsy Booth. Mumsy is here from Noah Tech, Alaska, where she calls home. She loves talking about, learning about, and teaching about her culture. She wants to further her education, which she has come to Outer Coast to do so. My story is about me figuring out my relationship with my hometown. It's a love and hate relationship. Growing up in Alaska, there's a lot of different cultures, and I'm proud to say that I grew up being Inupak. I love my culture and where I grew up, which is Notak. I love singing, dancing, sewing, beading, hunting, fishing, and hearing stories from our elders. I love our traditional foods and what we value. My favorite traditional foods is fresh salmon, what we catch in the summer, caribou soup, what we hunt in the fall, and trout, what we ice fish for in the winter. Other foods I love are muktuk, which is well meat. It's really good. And you put it with seal oil and it's even better. And I call that soul food. <laughs> we got taught at a young age to hunt, fish, and gather our food in general to provide for ourselves and each other. But other than our traditional foods, what we value is important. It's important because it's what we grew up following these values. They are respect for elders, knowledge of family tree, respect for nature, family roles, humility, humor, knowledge of language, respect for others, hunter success, sharing, avoidance of conflict, spirituality, love for children, responsibility to a tribe, domestic skills, cooperation, and hard work. We value those in many different ways. I learned them as a child growing up in my Inupak class. I had a great teacher. She's very funny. We as a small village help provide for each other in different ways. Some examples are when a person would catch their first caribou, he would give it to an elder of the village in honor of respect for elders. We work together as a village to help out on anything when needed and you just have that trust for each other like that. But other than what we value, what I like about living in just above the Arctic Circle is the weather, you know? I like having negative 30 degrees weather in the winter and then it being to 90 degrees in the summer. It's like controversial. <laughs> um, 
because we, we aren't really used to the hot summer, but we are always ready for the cold winter. <laughs> to get through the negative 30 degrees weather in winter, we have our own clothing. We make beaver hats, mittens, parkas, and mukluks, which the English word is boots, with different animal furs. But other than the winter and the summer, there's nothing really to do because it's like the sun doesn't ever set, so you have a really bad summer schedule. So what I like to do with my friends is go ride with our four-wheelers. Um, but then, if you imagine my small village, it's like 500 people, so riding a four-wheeler in a 500-people house is not really good because you get complaints. <laughs> so me and my friends go to this spot, and there's a butterfly, and it's like... It's a hill you go to, and one time when me and my friend Kira, who is in the audience, we went to the butterfly and she backflipped off a Honda. <laughs> I didn't know what to do because it was silent for like 30 seconds. So I didn't know if I, w I wanted to call her dad or like help her. But then after the silence broke, she laughed. <laughs> she laughed and then we went back to riding like it was normal. But when we were riding, it gets dusty because there's no cement, it's just rocks and dust. So when you get dusted, your hair gets all khaki. So it's like, it's not really good. <laughs> but the downside of living in a very small village is drugs. I got told that I was bold or brave talking about this the other day that about how I speak about drugs, but I don't think I'm being bold. It's just something that is used too much that seems not normal to talk about. Drugs is a very part of our village now. Drugs tear our families apart. Sometimes drugs make the family silent and not speak about their trauma that the family holds, which is what I've experienced. Drugs make the family start trauma, which is not talked about enough because of how they cope with it. No one really copes with the trauma they dealt with, so they just are silent. No one wants to speak up because they are scared or feel like it's a dessert for it to happen to them. Drugs even make families have an absent parent leaving the children to have depression, knowing they won't have that parent to help them learn and grow up. The kids that like, the kids that grow up like that start to do drugs too. Sometimes it's because of peer pressure, but other times it's just an answer for this family problems. They think that because of their absent mother or father does drugs for an answer, it might just be the answer for them too. But when those kids that choose to do drugs, they don't really have an education because it's a very small village. They won't have an education to get out of the drug addiction and won't go anywhere in life. It's a part of our generational trauma. It's been going on for years, but not talked about enough, at least for me. I hope that this message reached those who are silent because of their trauma. Drugs is something that's too normalized in my region, if not some other regions. If we didn't have drugs, we'd have happy families. If we didn't have drugs, we would have a stronger family root. If we didn't have drugs, we would have a stronger family connection. If we didn't have drugs, kids would grow up happy with both parents. If we didn't have drugs, kids would have a better education. If we didn't have drugs, we, would, we wouldn't be silent. If we didn't have drugs, teens wouldn't be peer pressured to do drugs because they aren't cool enough. If we didn't have drugs, our culture would be as strong as it was many years ago. How I dealt with it by, how I dealt with this drug addiction in our village is trying to keep 
our tradition alive. I do this by trying to be a teacher when I was once a student, teaching others about how important our culture is and trying to teach them that it's very important to me. I started to do this by being with my best friend, Kira, we saw an opportunity to start a club about teaching a little bit of our culture. We got lucky and some of our peers wanted to learn, so we started right away. We both taught Inupac dances, beating, and the stories that we learned as we grew up. I felt like I was an elementary student, but on the other side of the wheel, to be teaching and help them learn when I was once the student to learn. I remember having an Eskimo dance I learned when I was young, and then be teaching my new friends here at Outer Coast the same dance. It's like deja vu in a good way. I also remember seeing Kira being so frustrated with the first beating class we had. <laughs> we never had a beating class again. <laughs> but we laughed about it and moved on. We then, we then just had our normal beating classes but with not so many people frustrating her. <laughs> it was like a roller coaster of emotions that I couldn't put into words right now, but someday I will look back and be glad that I taught them and told this story. Thank you. Thanks, Mamsi. Uh, now let's welcome our next and last storyteller, Magnus Bjornum. And Magnus is from Sierra Madre, California, where he has lived his whole life and is an active member of the DIY music scene. This is his first time in Alaska, and he is loving the abundance of mollipedes, who remind him fondly of Sylvia and Deborah, two now deceased pet mollipedes that used to live in his room. Welcome. <laughs> My dad's side of the family, the Bjorgum family, is from Trondheim, Norway. And we lived there, as far as I know, for as long as we've been alive. And we went down from Trondheim to Minnesota, and then from Minnesota to Northern California. And then most recently, my dad moved from Northern California to Los Angeles, where me and my sister were born and raised. And as we are making this progression south from Norway all the way down to Los Angeles, there seems to be this desire in my family to move back north. My sister goes to college at UC Berkeley, which is around six hours from where I live in a car. And when my grandfather was 16, he drove from his town, McLeod, uh, which is a tiny logging town. There's 900 people that live there as of 2020. And he drove from a cloud on the slope of Mount Shasta up with his friend to Ketchikan. And his friend played the accordion the entire car trip. <laughs> and he worked in Ketchikan at a fish cannery for the summer. And he made more money per hour than his dad did. And then he came back and he went back to being a logger in McLeod. And those few details about the accordion and the cannery and the making more money than his dad are the only details that I know about that story. But I know that his time in Southeast Alaska really affected him in a large way. He went on to spend what is still the rest of his life memorizing poems, specifically those by Robert Service, about Alaska. 
and he would tell them to my dad and his sister or any other events where people would sit through him telling these long poems. And I don't think that I really understand, understood why coming to Alaska was so significant to him until now, and I'm 16 also, and by chance in Southeast Alaska, and I got here to Outer Coast, and it kind of hit me uh, why he memorized those poems and why three months when he was 16 went on to be something that echoed through the rest of his life. And in honor of my grandfather, Alfred Eugene Bjorgum, I want to perform for you the Cremation of Sam McGee, which is a famous Robert Service poem and one of his favorites. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The Northern Lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the South to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we close, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed, and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turns to me, and Cap, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of moan, it's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold, time chilled clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. Now a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried, horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, you may tax your bronze and brains, but you promise true, so it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, will the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh God, how I loathe the thing. And every day, that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad and I felt half mad, but I swore I could not give in. And I'd often sing to the hateful thing and it hearkened with a grin. 
till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice. It was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here I said, with a sudden cry, it's my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor and lit the boiler fire. Some coal I frowned that was lying around and heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. Then I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. The heavens scowled and the huskies howled and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I don't know for how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about. Ere again, I ventured near. I was filled with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. He wore a smile, you could see a mile, and he said, won't you close that door? It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. I heard that poem in its entirety for the first time about a month and a half ago. And I was in Sacramento visiting my grandma and grandpa. And they're divorced now, but neither of them know that now. And I was there under this big red umbrella with my mom and my dad and my sister. And it was kind of this weird glow from the hot sun through the umbrella. It's making us all look very orange. And both my grandparents have very severe dementia now. And even though they don't remember who I am or who my dad is even, when my dad read Sam McGee from a website on his phone, and then when he began to cry, when my mom read Sam McGee and stopped before those lines that end Sam McGee, my grandfather can still fill in those two words. And most of the time when he talks now, it's this low rumble. It's like listening to a fault line. But when he says Sam McGee, he's just so clear and it sounds as if he's able to recite the whole poem. And I left Sacramento, which is around 30 miles south of Auburn, where my father was raised. I went back to Los Angeles, but I kept thinking about Sam McGee. I kept thinking about my grandfather. And before I left to come here to Sitka, I was packing, and my dad interrupted my packing to show me this big blue book that he has. And it's his anthology of all of Robert Service's poems. And he was showing me that printed version of Sam McGee and other poems that were significant to him for one reason or another. But he was looking specifically for a poem that he had to read at his uncle's funeral. My grandfather is one of four brothers, and he'd made my dad read this Robert Service poem at one of the funerals for his brothers. And he's looking for it, and it was first that we couldn't figure out where that poem was in the book. And then we realized it was because my dad couldn't remember which poem it was that he'd read at my grandfather's brother's funeral. And I recited to you almost the whole poem. I recited all the words, but there's a last stanza, and that last stanza is identical to the first. And I'm going to finish the poem in a few moments, and if I could get 
all of you to say those last two words with me, Sam McGee. It would really mean a lot. And I want you to imagine, I'll cue you, that you've memorized this poem and you've been reciting it your whole life at family reunions and retirement parties. And now, all you can remember out of, I think it's 14 or 15 stanzas, and I know it's 881 words, are those two last words. It goes, I cremated Sam McGee. I'm gonna finish now. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The Northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Wow. How, again, how about the collaboration with Outer Coast? Should we do it again? Yeah! I want to give thanks, Magnus, and I want to give a huge shout out to all our storytellers for bringing Sick and Tells Tales to life once more. That's Pete Moss, Lily, Sophia, Momsey, and Magnus. We want to give a special thank you to Outer Coast student Zev Roshi for playing guitar at the beginning of this presentation. Thank you so much to the Sitka Daily Sentinel, Sitka Soup, and Raven Radio for helping us get the word out, to Tukon Dan, our photographer, to our timer, to Becky Myers for radio engineering and making so much happen on this podcast. To Dave Emmert, the editor of Sika Tells Tales and the one who tidies up our live events for the vault and future use. If you want to tell a story, collaborate, or have any feedback, you should pass it on to Ellen and I. Look for Sika Tells Tales on Facebook, on Instagram at 14 Miles Alaska, or by emailing artchangeinc at gmail.com. And you can find Sika Tells Tales wherever you tune into your podcast. Thank you so much for coming. This event was originally performed live on August 2nd, 2023 on the Smokestack stage of the Sitka Fine Arts Camp in Sitka, Alaska.